Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. We have been working our way through the story of Abraham and God's dealings with him. And let me say that there are things in Genesis 19 we might wish we never had to hear or never had to read publicly. This is not a happy Father's Day text. In fact, we're holding off the end of this text till next week. And I only just realized how inappropriate it would be to read about Lot's daughters uh, when the mind of people is on Father's Day. There are terrible and horrible things run amok in the world ever since the fall of mankind into rebellion. And God would not have us ignorant of these things, nor of what he will do. And uh, Jesus, you may remember, said, remember Lot's wife. And he, on numerous occasions, pointed to Sodom as a warning to us. And so God's word would have us, as it has in Providence, arrived at chapter 19, God would have us hear his word. Now as we arrive at chapter 19, it's part of a larger story. So let me just briefly remind you, in chapter 18 we saw that the Lord God and two angels, all in the appearance of men, came and visited Abraham, the friend of God. And Abraham hosted them, he feasted them and they had conversation and at the end of that meal and conversation God took Abraham out to an overlook where they could look down upon Sodom there in the valley at the south end of the Dead Sea on the plains below and God told him the cry of the oppressed has come to me and Abraham interceded on behalf he 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 uh, he asked the Lord and God agreed Lord if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, or if there are 30, or if there are 20, surely you won't destroy the city. And God said, yes, and even if there are 10 people who trust in me, I will not destroy, I will spare the whole city for their sake. And so the Lord sends on ahead the two angels to go into Sodom to investigate, not for his benefit, he knows all things, but that we might be assured that his his judgment about, his discernment of the cry in Sodom is true and that we can be confident in how he is handling this situation. What will he do and what did God do when they found things out? That's where we are in Genesis 19. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's Word. Genesis 19, 1 to 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. 
And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. And before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not, only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, This city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. 
Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord and our God, we bow before you. Hallowed be your Name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our sins. Teach us your way, O Lord. Teach us your word. Grant that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Evil is on full display. Lot is spared. And God's judgment destroys Sodom. I want to think about three things with you tonight. Those three things. In verses 1 to 11, we see God's indictment of Sodom. An indictment in which he invites us to agree with him. Then in verses 12 to 22, we see God's rescue of Lot. And God invites our amazement that Lot should be rescued. And then verses 23 to 29, we see God's destruction of Sodom. And we are invited to stand with Abraham in awe of God's judgment. I want you to think about those three things. In the first place, in verses 1 to 11, God's indictment of Sodom which invites our agreement. Here in verses 1 to 11, you have a kind of divine prosecutor laying out his case for the prosecution. And we, like a jury here, are invited to actually agree with the prosecutor. Consider their wickedness. Consider the case for the prosecution. Now, you remember in Genesis 14... Yahweh, the Lord God, had rescued Sodom because Lot had lived there. And God had rescued Sodom and the men and the women and the children from the hand of foreign kings who had taken them captive. But they would not have Yahweh, the Lord God, be their king. Melchizedek, you remember, priest of God Most High, praised Abraham's God for the success. It wasn't Abraham's power that rescued Lot. And the people, was, it was God's. 
But the king of Sodom, what did he try to do? He tried to buy Abraham's allegiance to him and away from God. This is the kind of place it was. Now in Genesis 19 we read, or in 18 we read, that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And we said that word outcry is a legal or judicial term. It's the cry for help by the oppressed. It has risen to the ears of God and he is going to send his angels to see if indeed they have brought an end to themselves. If the outcry is as bad as he thought it was. And now these angels go in. These two men, these two angels, 19-1, they go into the city to scout things out. And what do we learn there? We learn two more things in the case against Sodom. We learn in the first place, that they were, to understate it, inhospitable to strangers. Now that may not seem like a great thing, but actually in that culture it was huge. Abraham, chapter 18, goes out of its way to point out how he had feasted the Lord when the Lord and his guests had visited his house. Here, Lot feasts these guests. He, he fixes a meal. Now it's later in the evening, so the bread's going to be unleavened. It doesn't have time to rise. But he didn't give them some paltry crumbs off the table. He brought them in. He gave them a place to sleep. He gave them food and water. He gave them drink. He gave them a meal and he gave them protection. He was a good host to them. But what does Sodom want to do? It wants to abuse them. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 says this, God says, behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy, let alone the stranger within their gates. They were inhospitable. They lacked love for the stranger. But on top of all that, there is one other thing here pointed out, as you heard. They were violent, sexual predators. You and I would be hard-pressed to find anyone who approves of gang rape, except perhaps some, and I doubt even all, but some among those who commit gang rape. You might find some in prison who would affirm this is fine, this is good, this is the way it is, the law of nature. You might find some among ISIS or Boko Haram. You find it happening around the world, but most of the world agrees. This is evil. Verse 4 falls all over itself to make clear that the whole male population of the city was involved in this. Verse 4, before they had laid down to go to sleep, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And what is it they want? They want to, verse 5, they want to know these men who have come into their city. And that clearly involves sexual knowledge. This is a term often used in scripture to, to speak that way. When Adam knew Eve, she conceived and bore a child. And Lot, seeking to thwart their plans, says, don't do this evil thing. And they threaten him. Verse 9, we're going to deal worse now with you than with them. So evidently here in Sodom, some of the men at least were presumably bisexual and had wives 
or else Sodom wouldn't have had much of a population and Lot's daughters wouldn't have been betrothed to some of the men of Sodom. And yet all of them here are seeking homosexual relations, even homosexual gang rape. And Lot is aware of the manner, uh, of, of their manner in, in welcoming people to town. That's why, verse 2, he presses them hard to come to his house. And why uh, he says, or, or verse 3, and at verse 2 he says, and, and early in the morning, y'all can leave. Sneak in, hide away, and get out before the people wake up, is what he's saying to them. He, Lot knew how cruel and how humiliating and how heartless his neighbors were. How many strangers had they treated this way that the cry of the oppressed had gone into the ears of God? And this, friends, is the indictment against them for their wickedness. And the whole Bible, you may remember, forbids their sexual practices. Not even speaking of the violence of it, but Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, the Old Testament law, says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 picks up on that language, that very language in Romans 1, 26 and 27, speaking the language of homosexuality. And he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged unnatural uh, relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error across the pages of the bible old and new testament the bible speaks this way about that kind of sexual activity and And now there are, we have to say, there are people who don't read Genesis 19 that way. There's been an effort made to see this as not a sexual sin, but but merely a transgression of the custom of treating uh, visitors hospitably. Uh, They'll say that, well, the men of Sodom, they, they wanted to know these men in the way that Lot was getting to know them, and that Lot was keeping them from the relationships that they might otherwise develop. That's basically the argument. But verse 8 makes it plain. Lot offers his two daughters who had not known any man. That makes it plain. We're not talking about introductions, handshakes, and smiles all around here. So in Genesis 19, God hears the cry against Sodom and and. The question of chapter 18 is apropos. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will will do what is right. He will do what is just. What is it he will do? And before you get to what he does, I just want you to see that the scripture is telling you all these particular details. Because the scripture is actually inviting you and I to agree as like a jury to agree with God that this is evil and that his condemnation of them is just, whatever that condemnation he chooses to be. Look, some of you have seen The Lion King. 
and I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for some who haven't been out a long time. You remember Mufasa, uh, the king, uh, he's killed in a rebellious plot against him by his wicked brother Scar. Scar frames the rightful heir, Simba, and, and makes it out that Simba is the one who murdered Mufasa, and then Scar assumes the throne. And Simba grows up, he's banished, and then, and then he grows up and he returns to his kingdom and Scar seeks him out to kill him as well. And he's pushed him to the edge of a cliff where there's this great fire da- raging down below. And Scar says to him, where have I seen this before? Hmm, let me think. Oh yes, I remember. This is exactly the way your father looked before he died. And uh, now here's my little secret. And he whispers, I killed Mufasa. And at that moment, what do you want to see happen? You want Simba to rip Scar apart. And if not that, you at least want Scar to get what he deserves. In some way, you want justice against that rebel that usurper, that evildoer. And in this story, God wants to form our conscience to love as good what he calls good and to hate as evil what he calls evil and to want justice to reign for the sake of the oppressed. Now, we stop and we pause and we ask the question, well, what are you saying? Is there, is there no hope for those who practice sexual perversion? And the answer to that is no and yes. No. Consider Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where Paul uses again the word homosexual, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The two great terms translated there as men who practice homosexuality, if you have the NIV, the New International Version, it's actually split them into two different, uh, helpfully so, uh, into two different words, the male prostitutes and homosexual offenders, because the, the idea in it uh, contains both the passive and active partners in this kind of relationship. Now notice, we should pause and say, notice Paul in that 1 Corinthians 6 passage is not singling out homosexual sin. He includes all the sexually immoral. Those who engage in sex outside of marriage along with adulterers who commit sexual sin against their spouses as married people. And Paul doesn't mince words. You can't live like this and inherit the kingdom of heaven. But do remember his emphasis is on practicing these offenses. He isn't speaking here of feelings or tendencies or temptations. He isn't speaking here of sins committed and forsaken. 
He isn't speaking, he is speaking here of a lifestyle of actual and ongoing activity such that you are characterized as a person who does these things. But that also is not all that Paul says. We said you cannot be saved. Verse 11 says you can. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you, some of us in this room, know that experience in the face of that kind of sin. And that is hope. In Jesus, there is washing for our defilement, there is purification for our pollution, there is acquittal for our guilt. And so what you see in the scriptures is both a uniform condemnation of the practice of homosexuality and at the same time the salvation in Jesus and the participation in the church of people who have engaged in just these sorts of things. Because the God who condemns is also the God who pardons and who welcomes sinners into his family and delights to call you his son or daughter and make you an heir everlastingly of his kingdom. He's that good. Now in saying all this, I have to say that we've got to be prepared to be told that we are intolerant for believing what the Bible says about this or for reading these words of scripture. We ought to be prepared here in the States for it to become, and may it never be, but for it to become illegal or otherwise dangerous to read and affirm these portions of the Bible in public as it is illegal in certain other nations of the world. And the pressures on Christians are growing enormous, and they're only getting worse to conform our minds to the pattern of this world that we would think the same way as the world thinks about these things. We will be told, you and I will be told, that we are unloving if we do not positively affirm every sexual lifestyle choice. We will be told, as some have been in recent days on national news shows, that to fail to positively affirm a homosexual lifestyle, even in a tweet, is the same as siding with terrorists who murder homosexuals. But I want to say to you that it is not hate, but it is rather love, love for people that drives the Bible's frankness about these things. It is not loving to affirm a lifestyle that God says will lead you in the end to hell. And it is not loving to tell adulterers or thieves or idolaters or swindlers or the greedy or the sexually immoral or those who practice homosexuality that it's fine if they just go on their way, that God thinks it's fine and okay too, and there is in fact no judgment from him. It's not loving to do that, friends. It is loving, however, loving toward God to agree with him about his view of these things. And it is loving to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to ourselves if we have to, to say 
There is a way of salvation in Jesus. And, and we may take it and be saved. That's loving. So repent and believe the good news. That's the first thing. God's indictment of them and, and his invitation for us to agree with him about it. The second thing is God's rescue of Lot. And that invites our amazement. Here is a kindness from God Lot does not deserve. Not in the beginning, not in the middle, and not at the end. It's unbelievable in some ways. On the front end of the rescue, think of how undeserving he is. If you go all the way back to chapter 13, Lot had not been slowed up at all by the evil of Sodom to choose that as his dwelling place where he pitched his tent near the city. Now at chapter 19, we find him not outside the city, but he's living in the city. He has a house in the city. And he settled down at the gate, the seat of commerce and government. He is very cozy in Sodom. Why should he be rescued? And then when the town is is banging on his door, what does he do? He plays the pimp. He offers to prostitute his daughters. What was he thinking? (laughs) To be sure... The customs and laws of hospitality in his day expected that he not only assumed responsibility for the, the, the sleep and the food and the drink of his visitors, but also their protection, even if need be, at cost to himself. He brought them into his home. He has to give his life on their behalf, if need be, but not at the cost of the rape of his daughters. John Calvin says he should rather have endured a thousand deaths than have resorted to such a measure. And so what does he do? He seeks to remedy one evil by another evil. He, and, and some people will seek to excuse him for it, saying, well, perhaps he knew they wouldn't accept it. Some people would say, well, you know, his daughter's future husbands are out in that crowd seeking this same thing. And, and maybe he's thinking to himself, well, their friends would be, along with the men themselves, would be repulsed by this invitation. And they wouldn't want to dishonor their mutual friends, and that would stop them short and make them rethink the whole thing. Some also have tried to say, well, no, no, this is, he's actually set a trap for them. Because to have taken him up on his offer, when the daughters were, in fact, betrothed to men, they were betrothed, they were sons-in-law, they hadn't yet consummated or been married, but, but to do this would have made them liable by the custom and law of their day to capital punishment. The, the Code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi, um, um, Hammurabi and, and uh, Egyptian codes and even uh, other codes would have, would have affirmed that. This, was, this would have been a capital crime for the men to sleep with the daughters who were engaged to others. And, and, and so maybe he's trying to say, uh, well, they'll say... We could never do that. That's a horrible crime. And he could say, right, exactly. And what you're asking for is worse. Don't do this wicked thing. But in any case, his plan, whether sincere or not, whether he really intended to give away his daughters or was using it as a ruse, it was at best horribly misguided. And it will bear evil fruit as we'll see next week if not out flatly, wickedly evil. Why should this man be rescued in the midst of this awful thing? Look what he does. And then having bungled it, 
verse 10, the angels have to intervene for him. They, they reach out with strong arms. They pull them back inside the house. They, verse 11, incapacitate the attackers with blindness. So they stumble all over but can't even find the door. Lot's strategy has failed, but God has worked on his behalf. And now at verse 12, he's told, look, if you have any family here who can escape with you, take them. Do you have sons? Uh, take your daughters. Do you have sons-in-law? Uh, take them too. We'll take them all. With you, Lot, go assemble them. Once again, you see in the book of Genesis, just like with Noah, one man receives grace in the eyes of the Lord and his whole household is invited to participate in the benefits of that. The wrong, (laughs) even the sons-in-law who are on the wrong side of the door, he is to invite into this salvation. But verse 14 Lot can't persuade them. He goes out, he talks to them, they laugh, they think he's joking. Maybe his religion was such a joke to them because of how poorly he'd lived it out. They just couldn't take the man seriously. And then as morning dawn, the city is about to be destroyed and the angels say, you must flee. And at verse 16 it says, he lingered. He lingered. It's almost like he wants to stay. Like there's something left for him in Sodom. Or as if his sons-in-law will come around if he waits them out long enough. Or as though the angels uh, are exaggerating the danger. He has to be seized, taken by the hand by angels. They have to compel him to go. And why do they do so? Verse 16, middle of it. Because... The Lord was merciful to him. This wasn't his merit. It was the Lord's mercy from beginning to the middle and even to the end. Having gone as they are going, what does he have the audacity to say? They say to him, escape for your life. Don't look back. Escape to the hills. And what does he say? Verse 29, verse 19 and 20. He basically says, hey, you spared my life. Thank you. Now I don't really like your plan, and I've got a better one. Let me go to that little city over there. I don't want to go to the hills where you told me to go. God had assigned him a mountain for his refuge, and he says, I'll take that little city. Hadn't he had enough trouble in the Jordan Valley? I mean, what audacity, what arrogant, vain pride is in this man's heart, the kind of pride you see in Sodom. Why should this man be rescued? And yet the Lord graciously grants his request. God sometimes kindly and gently bears with the evil wishes even of his own people. And to be sure, Lot belongs to the Lord. Peter tells you he was a righteous man in turmoil in his heart over the wickedness of the people. And where is Lot finally when the judgment falls? He is outside the circle of judgment Because his presence in that little city spares not only himself, but the people of that little city. You've got to ask, was he singing through many dangers, toils, and snares? I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He ought to have been singing it if he wasn't. God's rescue of him beginning middle and end is entirely undeserved. That's how salvation is. I can't help but 
being reminded of John 6:44 where Jesus says no one can come to the father come to me unless the father who sent me draws him you know that passage can be translated no one is able it's the no one can as in no one is able to come to me unless the father who sent me drags him or draws him or takes him by the hand in this picture of Lot and leads him safely out of the city and into salvation. What song are you singing? Are you amazed at grace to Lot? And do you sing with amazement, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This is grace to Lot in his rescue. And then finally, verses 23 to 29, you see the actual judgment of Sodom, and this invites our awe. Verse 24, Yahweh, the Lord God, reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. Lot, you remember, had chosen the Jordan Valley precisely because it was lush, and it was green, and it was like a little garden of Eden, filled with water and growing things. But a beautiful place does not make a beautiful people. And now its cities and its people, and what grew on the ground even, lay smoldering. God's destruction of it is complete and devastating. And there is no need for you to look to natural disasters for why Sodom no longer exists. From Yahweh, fire and sulfur rained down. From Yahweh out of heaven, it came down. It was capital punishment. That is what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. And the destruction of Sodom is a picture of hell. Fire and sulfur in the book of Revelation is a picture of the lake of fire of sulfur. The picture of the second death where the devil and the beast and all his worshipers and all all who go to hell reside. This is what we all deserve for any one of our sins. And notice Mrs. Lot, verse 26. She looked back. She was told not to. She looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. The people of Sodom, because she's from Sodom, have become like the Dead Sea where they lived. You understand that people can make an end of themselves. That they reach the limits of their sin and the judge of all the earth calls them to his face that they might give an account and he might render judgment. And you know that nations like people can likewise make an end of themselves and bring upon themselves destruction as the cry reaches God on behalf of the oppressed. How shall we stand or how shall we respond? We should respond like Abraham standing, verse 27, 28 following, where in the morning he goes and he looks down at all the destruction and he simply stands and he looks and he beholds and, and it is a solemn and awful moment. Everything is gone. And we are told in verse 29 explicitly that God spared Lot because of Abraham's intercessions. God, it says, remembered Abraham and sent Lot 
out of the midst of the overthrow. So his prayers were answered. God answered them and spared Lot. And so we should stand here with Abraham in all of God's judgment, and we should stand with the Bible here in all of God's salvation of a man like Lot and take comfort and hope that there is hope for us too because Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will rescue you. I will save you. I offer myself to you, not as your judge, but as your savior. And do remember that when the Bible warns you about the coming judgment, it does so as your friend. The Bible seeks to spare you that end, that you might have the way of escape in Jesus and life in pleasure forevermore before the face of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would rescue us, that you would draw us out of our sin, that you would turn our hearts from evil, that you would help us see Jesus dying on a cross, that we might be pardoned, help us to lean on him, rest in him for salvation. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.